Hello and welcome to a special episode of Sound Strategic. I'm Maya Nowens. In today's episode, I'll be discussing the IISS Fullerton lecture delivered by U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin on the 27th of July, 2021 at the IISS Asia office in Singapore. The remarks were made during the Secretary's first visit to Southeast Asia and focused on the importance of partnerships between the U.S. and countries in the region as well as ASEAN. Here to discuss with me today whether or not the Secretary hit the right tone with his remarks and how they were perceived in Southeast Asia are three of my colleagues from the IISS Asia office, James Crabtree, Ewan Graham, and Aaron Connolly. James Crabtree is the executive director of the IISS Asia office and the host of this week's Fullerton lecture with the Secretary of Defense. Ewan Graham is the Shangri-La Dialogue Senior Fellow for Asia-Pacific Security and looks specifically at security and defense issues within the region. And last but certainly not least is Aaron Connolly, Research Fellow in Southeast Asia and Political Change and Foreign Policy. So James, Ewan, and Aaron, welcome onto the podcast again. James, you hosted the Secretary of Defense uh, at the IISS Fullerton Lecture. So do you think this was an effective speech to give on the Secretary's first trip to Southeast Asia, and did it hit the right tone? I think the consensus in our team and in the room was that this was a reasonable effort. He had a pretty tricky job to do, um, if you're honest. So there had been a lot of mutterings in the region uh, in the period leading up to the speech that there hadn't been enough American attention paid to Southeast Asia, this against the backdrop of um, ever-rising Chinese military and economic power in the region, uh, a general sense that Biden, despite uh, raised expectations, had been distracted elsewhere. Um, and then there was a, a, a array of different concerns about what the US had or hadn't been able to do in terms of COVID recovery, um, and then in terms of some specific military issues to do with China, uh, Taiwan. So he had a lot of, um, a lot of things to hit, and he had to do it in a, in a sensitive way because the Southeast Asian audience needs some delicate handling. Um, they want the US to show that they're engaged, but not so engaged that it will upset the apple cart with China. And I think Secretary Austin produced a pretty creditable performance in that respect. He ticked the COVID recovery box. He talked about that for a long time, which was important to get his audience. He talked predictably about the importance of partnership in the region. And he had some reasonably tough words towards the end for China. So I think um, it's not a speech that will satisfy everyone, but broadly speaking, the feedback that we got uh, in the room um, at the WIWS Fullerton Forum was, was fairly positive. And I think now it's a, a sense of people looking to see, well, okay, what are they going to do to move forward from this point? And how are they going to deliver on some of the things that he mentioned in the speech? Ewan, would I be correct in saying that for a speech given by a Secretary of Defense, Secretary Austin's remarks were actually rather thin on defense-related detail? You would. And I think this satisfied the generalists and the, the foreign policy crowd more than it did the defense wonks. There wasn't much detail in there. There was certainly no new initiatives that I'm uh, aware of. And there were some things that he could have announced, like a large-scale U.S. Army exercise ongoing in Indonesia that he didn't know. Perhaps he chose not to because he didn't want to draw attention to the sensitivities of his hosts. But I thought it lacked specifics. This was not intended to be a defense policy speech, though. I think you have to understand the nature of who the audience, the intended audience is. And coming to Singapore, uh, as uh, James has said, Southeast Asia has been a uh, arguably neglected region under the Biden administration. So predominantly, these were notes of reassurance that he was trying to give to to this audience and Asia more generally. 
I think the 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 meat of the of the um, policy work will be uh, on the ground currently in the Philippines, where there is uh, a rather uh, tenuous negotiation about the extension of the visiting forces agreement, which is uh, a, a primary point of uh, access for U.S. military forces to Southeast Asia. Uh, and he has a meeting with uh, President Duterte. In some ways, you know, the less media attention, it shows the greater the significance of the meeting. There's been a virtual media blackout since he arrived in Manila. That, I think, suggests the sensitivity around that, that particular meeting. Vietnam seems to have gone okay. I don't know that there were any new deliverables from that either. But Singapore was really a platform uh, of a general speech to the, uh, the region, Southeast Asia in particular, to try and send notes of, of reassurance. And he didn't send any offense to anyone, but I don't think the speech will, will live very long in the memory. Before moving on to Aaron and uh, getting his thoughts on how this was perceived in the region, there was, of course, a mention of integrated deterrence. And I was wondering whether you could maybe speak to this a little bit for our audience who might not know what it means or whether or not it's new. Secretary Austin did mention integrated uh, deterrence. Um, it's not an entirely new concept. It's the new buzzword around uh, the Pentagon and has been uh, associated with the, the handover of command, the Indo-Pacific command in, in Hawaii. I, I think it's, as with a lot of things, China related a bit of a, a Rorschach test. Uh, one can read into it either a glass half empty or a glass half full. The glass half empty is that by spreading the burden of deterrence across all policy silos, it, it devalues the, the, the role of the military aspect of, de of deterrence and the uh, influence of DOD on that policy. That's one read. Another read is that this is a, a whole of government uh, adjustment in a way that's appropriate to deal with China, which draws linkages across all policy areas. Secretary Austin was trying to introduce it into a international context of, of allies and, and partners, which leads, I think, to the question of burden sharing. That, that's uppermost in, in my mind, how the US uh, wants to approach that in Southeast Asia. But again, there were no clear answers from his either his speech or in the, the Q&A session. Either he was keeping his powder dry for the bilateral meetings ahead, or it revealed that he has rather sketchy knowledge of the region. Aaron, moving on to the view from the region then, how do you think Secretary Austin's message of partnership will have been received by both countries in the region as well as by ASEAN? We convened a, a kind of focus group of Southeast Asian uh, think tankers, analysts, and diplomats after the speech. The reviews were really positive. To some extent, the administration is still on its honeymoon. That honeymoon was beginning to ebb away because the region hadn't received any visits, as, as James mentioned, uh, since it took office by a, a cabinet official. There was Wendy Sherman's visit, the deputy secretary of state, earlier this year, but that was relatively low key. And so this was you know, not just a defense visit. It was also the first visit by the administration, by a cabinet level official from the new administration to the region. And I think that is probably why um, it had a kind of breadth that we wouldn't have normally expected from a Secretary of Defense uh, at a Shangri-La dialogue. Um, but I think it hit all the right, right notes from the Southeast Asian perspective. It tried to strike a balance, as uh, James said, between restoring deterrence and ensuring or assuring uh, Southeast Asian states that the United States would seek to deter unilateral action by China, say, over Taiwan, for example. The United States was not looking for a conflict and uh, would be wary of doing things that could uh, escalate the security dilemma in the region. And that was a balance that Southeast Asians have been asking for since the Obama administration. 
I think it's actually quite difficult for the U.S. to strike, given the multiple audiences for a speech like this. But they seem to have done it, at least from the Southeast Asian perspective. I thought a notable comment in the secretary's speech was the point that the United States isn't asking countries to choose between China and the United States. Do you think that that's an accurate reflection of current U.S. policy? And if so, is that a significant shift in how the U.S. is seeking to engage with the region uh, from uh, in comparison to uh, the former Trump administration? It's a line that's been used by a number of administrations, the Obama administration, perhaps more than the Trump administration. Both administrations, both the previous administrations talked about trying to give the region options, saying, you know, we're trying, we're not trying to choose the U.S. option if you don't want to, but we want you to know that it's there and that you don't have to accept the PRC option, the, the option that is on offer from Beijing. It's the right line for a speech like this from the U.S. perspective, the first speech, uh, which was graded on a relatively generous curve. But I think it's going to be more difficult over time for the U.S. to maintain that line as it continues to do things for Southeast Asians to choose over uh, things like supply chains, uh, where there is a choice being forced right now by both countries, by China and the U.S., over whether or not they want to be part of a U.S. supply chain or a Chinese supply chain or try to find some way to be part of both. That's going to be a more challenging line to, to push in the future, I think. There were also mentions, I think, of other concerns of countries in the region. For example, when referencing local capacities and the U.S.'s assistance to bolster maritime domain awareness, there was a, a mention that this wasn't just about protecting country sovereignties, but actually broader interests as well that aren't always mentioned uh, upfront and directly. Do you think that that was a, a good approach to take? And if so, could you maybe elaborate a little bit on what those other interests are that were mentioned and were important to mention? It is a change, I, I think, in particular from the Obama administration, where U.S. officials would often talk about uh, abstract ideals they wanted to see embedded in what they, they called the rules-based order, a, a phrase that I don't believe appeared in Austin's speech on Tuesday night. It was a shift to talking about these ideals as they apply to the ability of Southeast Asian nations to build a prosperous future for themselves. And uh, when you think about the amount of protein that Southeast Asians consume that comes out of the Mekong River, which has been uh, you know, depleted of water as a result of uh, upstream dams on the Lanchang uh, River in China or in the South China Sea, which has lost, you know, according to some estimates, 90% of its fish stocks over the last 60 years. Um, but those are things that really do impact the lives of average Southeast Asian. And it's something that has political resonance in Southeast Asia. So rather than talking about freedom of overflight or freedom of navigation in that kind of abstract way, uh, it is. it seems to me to be an attempt to apply it to and the political realities of Southeast Asia in a way that might resonate a bit more strongly. Just to come in on the Southeast Asia aspect, I didn't read much detail on Southeast Asia uh, in the speech. It was actually broader on Asia. He, he went out of his way on ASEAN, hit the usual expected notes about recognizing that it had a central role. And there wasn't much at a, at a country level there. And I think stepping back from that to look again at the, the actual reality of the itinerary, the itinerary is quite revealing in its own right. You come to Singapore, Singapore is a kind of proxy platform for the region. But beyond that, it's Vietnam and the Philippines. So I think you can also read into that, that Southeast Asia's strategic geography is revealing itself in those choices of countries. He didn't go to Indonesia. You could argue a case for going to Thailand, which still has an alliance relationship with the United States. That wasn't the case. Uh, instead, we see a sort of stepping stone approach uh, with uh, the Philippines as the primary interest in, in U.S. access as, a, as an ally in strategic geography, equally placed next to the South China Sea and south of Taiwan, for obvious reasons, it's important. And then Vietnam 
uh, as the, the state that is doing most to uh, resist Chinese encroachment in Southeast Asia and for real reasons of real politique is, is trying to keep the U.S. militarily engaged and applying a, a balancing approach to doing that. It's a rather stripped away vision of Southeast Asia, you could argue. He spoke really in themes as opposed to running through a kind of laundry list of, you know, countries or relationships that needed to be tended to in a speech like this, which is what we've seen from some secretaries of defense at Shangri-La in the past. And so this this really seemed as though it was a speech that uh, was written by, you know, maybe a couple of individuals as opposed to a, a committee. As a result, I think it had a, a greater coherence than many of the speeches that we've seen at the Shangri-La Dialogue from U.S. secretaries of defense in the past, where there's clearly an interagency process that produces those speeches. And I think that that was uh, some of the reason that, that it was structured in the way that it was. Um, at, at first, I actually thought that the speech slighted Thailand in some way because it only briefly mentioned Thailand. And then I did a control F analysis, which is not the most sophisticated of analyses. The Secretary of Defense didn't mention many countries in great detail at all outside of his host, Singapore. So I think this kind of thematic approach actually was one of the things that allowed the, the speech to resonate a bit more. I just wanted to mention that it's something that I thought was really interesting that we wouldn't have seen from the Trump administration was a note of humility at the end of the speech, uh, an acknowledgement by Secretary Austin that um, American democracy uh, hasn't always gotten it right. He thought that the United States was far better than some of the anti-Asian American violence that we've seen in recent years. And that is something that in speaking to Southeast Asians about the speech afterwards, almost universally, people have said that that was appreciated. That note of humility was necessary. The United States can't pretend as though nothing has happened over the past year, specifically referring to the, the January 6th insurrection. But then uh, Secretary Austin pivoted and he said, we're not trying to hide our flaws. Uh, and democracies, when we stumble, you can see it. And that forces us to try and recover from those stumbles. And it was one of the few moments in the speech where he seemed to really step in with emotion uh, about what he was saying. Uh, he's a very calm, even-keeled kind of guy, but he seemed to really feel that one, and it, it seemed to resonate with his audience as well. And just going back to this point about this speech being the first speech by a Biden administration official in Southeast Asia and needing to kind of reset the tone, I think that uh, was one of the most important parts of the speech. The Secretary of Defense spoke about the U.S.'s commitment to pursue a constructive, stable relationship with China and noted in particular the desire for stronger crisis communications with the People's Liberation Army. How do you think this will be received in Beijing and how do you actually think he handled the mentioning of China in his speech? I think the China section was muted. It was hard for him to structure the speech in any other way. So as we've already said, the structure of the speech was basically part one, COVID, part two, friends and allies, and then China came at the end. And I think it would have been difficult to do it any other way around. You had to talk about COVID to get a hearing to a Southeast Asian audience, then bashing the Chinese is difficult because your hosts don't like that. And so it's not really the place to make a very assertive China speech. Nonetheless, even the language that they use. So I'm committed to pursuing a constructive, stable relationship with China, as you say, including stronger crisis communications. So the, the crisis communications refers to something that President Biden has talked about, not a literal hotline, but uh, he's been talking about uh, you know, an in in encrypted digital communication with China. I'm not sure how credible anybody finds this as an idea. Uh, you and Aaron can say more about this, but at the moment we're in a peculiar situation where one of the questions that we had considered asking Secretary Austin was who he considered his Chinese opposite number to be, because there's been some public debate about 
this, whether it's um, General Wei Fang He, who's typically the defense minister who appears at the Shangri-La Dialogue, or whether it is uh, other officials um, with a closer links to the, the Communist Party. Certainly, I think it would be fair to say that the language that they used in here, it wasn't particularly assertive or aggressive. I mean, it did name check the alleged genocide in, um, in Xinjiang. Neither did it have the kind of initiatives that came spewing out of the Trump administration in its final days and major policy speeches of, of attempts to push back the Chinese in various different domains. There wasn't really anything new um, in this. And so I think my instinct would be that if I was watching this in Beijing, I wouldn't be terribly worried about what the Americans were coming at me with. I mean, it might be that I might think this isn't the place for them to come out with that kind of speech because you have to tailor your remarks to the audience and the audience specifically isn't very fond of um, saber rattling at the Chinese. Nonetheless, I think muted would be a fair response. As James said, the audience is is the key variable here. Um, he will have been very intensively briefed by his staff not to wedge a Southeast Asian audience on China. That's 101 of, of coming here as, a, as an American uh, cabinet official trying to send notes of, of reassurance. He didn't put a foot really out of, out of step on that. I don't think any China hawk would have been particularly impressed with what he had to say, but um, I don't think that that's really the context of this speech. Your question about crisis communications is an interesting one, though, because the Biden administration does seem to have lighted on this as an area where it wants to get Beijing to budge. I think there might be some concern about those who feel that that's actually the wrong paradigm through which US-China relations, security relations, and defense relations should be approached, because it's about crisis management. Uh, and it assumes that crisis management communications will, between rational uh, conflict-avoiding partners, be enough to avert conflict at the end of the day. The US has tried for decades to try and get a hotline of various sorts to Beijing uh, and it hasn't stuck. And I think that reveals a difference of mentality uh, in Beijing. There are questions about the symmetry of the systems, as James said, the, the idea of a clear counterpart for anyone in, in, in the American system. There aren't obvious analogues for you know, the, the Pacific Fleet commander or the Indo-PACOM commander in, uh, in, in Beijing. But I think it's a broader, uh, more challenging issue of, that, that really is at the bottom of that. Uh, which is uh, China doesn't take the same approach to, to crisis management and is actually leveraging that mentality to its advantage because it's exploiting the risk aversion of the United States and its allies and partners to try and cut the salami uh, below that level of conflict. They may not necessarily do harm, but that they're not going to be a panacea to the strategic competition and its underlying drivers. As you mentioned, uh, the secretary has already been to Vietnam, uh, is currently in the Philippines. What are we expecting to come out of the legs of the trip? And what should our audience be looking for following his return to the United States, if anything? I think what's interesting about the coming period is not so much what Austin will do, but what will come next from the Americans. So as you said, there'll be some focus on the forces agreement in the Philippines and um, you know wh whether there's positive news out of that, given President Duterte's um, imminent 
uh, departure from office. But but really, I think what people are going to be looking for is, okay, this is a good down payment now. You know, who and what do we get next? At some point, Secretary of State Lincoln will come to the region. There were press rumors this week that Vice the vice president may come. We anticipate Admiral Aquilino, the new commander of Indo-PACOM, um, is also likely to come. And so both as the U.S. guided by Asia Zar Kirk Campbell at the National Security Council begin to correct the perception that Southeast Asia has been an area that's been ignored and, and used different tools to, to, to kind of focus on that. But also, hopefully, for those of us living in Singapore, as COVID restrictions simply make it easier to travel to this part of the world. I mean, it's still a real pain to get people in and out of the country here, which is partly why it's been uh, why it's been difficult for the Americans to to bring many people to the region. So I think we're anticipating that there'll be a step up in uh, U.S. diplomacy um, in this part of the world over the coming period. And I think I think that's what's going to be interesting to watch what comes out of that, not so much from the Pentagon, but from the rest of the government as well, both through the State Department, also through the Quad, um, around the time of the Quad leaders meeting um, and other initiatives like that. This speech was graded on a, a pretty generous curve by Southeast Asians, uh, but things will get harder from here on in. The curve will steepen and the secretary and his colleagues in the Biden administration will have to uh, accomplish some higher order tasks that will not be easy. There are a number of contradictions in U.S. policy. We spoke about some of them earlier. The United States is sitting on a vast supply of COVID-19 vaccines and the secretary spoke about how it had contributed 40 million doses so far to Southeast Asia, but this is a region of around 650 million people. It has pledged a billion in total, uh, but those vaccines are needed now. They're needed yesterday, they're needed months ago, but they're not coming quickly enough. And so I think at some point the United States needs to make good on that commitment uh, for COVID vaccines. Um, the second thing I mentioned is just uh, the visiting forces agreement. Whether or not an agreement is signed in Manila on Secretary Austin's visit uh, this week, the Visiting Forces Agreement and the Mutual Defense Treaty, uh, which underlies it, will continue to be under threat so long as Rodrigo Duterte is president. He could very easily choose to cancel the Visiting Forces Agreement again. He has around 11 months left in his presidency, uh, so that will continue to be a real pressure point for the U.S. Uh, going forward. And then just finally, I'd say, you know, the secretary got away pretty easily in response to a question from Tommy Coe about whether or not the United States is prioritizing the Quad over ASEAN. And I'm not sure he will be able or his colleagues will be able to get away quite so easily on that question in the future. I think uh, Southeast Asians we spoke to were satisfied with his answer in which he said that they were complementary rather than competitive. It is a zero-sum game. If decisions about the region's future are being made through the Quad and Southeast Asia is not at the table, even if the United States or Japan or India or others are carrying those inputs to the table, then that is something that Southeast Asians have traditionally seen as a real risk to their ability to, you know, as the secretary says, have options and make their way in the world in a way of their own choosing. And so I think that contradiction in U.S. policy will sharpen over time and the United States will need a better answer to that question. In terms of personalities, uh, also on the trip uh, with uh, Secretary Austin, uh, sworn in on the flight over, in fact, was Deputy Assistant uh, Secretary of Defense Eli Ratner. He's now in position. Uh, he led the still classified uh, China Review at the Pentagon. So his influence will be interesting to, to watch, uh, particularly on, uh, on US-China relations as they play out in the, in the defense space. Stepping back to uh, Southeast Asia-US relations, there's been a bit of a debate here between ASEAN um, side of the, of the crowd who, who think that the US has neglected Southeast Asia and, and ASEAN 
uh, and that this visit was, was partly a, a, an attempt to redress that. On the other side of the equation from the US, um, that there are critics who say, well, what's in it for the US? Southeast Asia has to be doing more than, uh, than just uh, demanding US attention. Uh, what's the counter offer in terms of access and what the Southeast Asians are willing to do to make the, the US military presence here uh, more sustainable uh, and engaged? Uh, and the visiting forces agreement is, is the most pressing part of that, but it's not the only one. Uh, if you actually look at what the agreements that the United States has here, beyond Singapore, there aren't many offers of increased uh, access on the table. There may be a reason that the United States has taken its time to get around to visiting Southeast Asia at cabinet level. They concentrated, first of all, on the, on the, the treaty allies in Northeast Asia, Japan, South Korea, and then India. So um, Southeast Asia has actually come uh, at the back of the queue ahead of a non-ally in India, and that tells its own story, I think, about where the United States uh, wants to put its, uh, uh, its attention. Third and final point, um, this was a busy week for US uh, defense relations. The Chief of Navy was also in Singapore here yesterday. Uh, he gave a speech, and I didn't really see a, any shift of policy in that, but it brought to my mind, again, this question of burden sharing. Uh, that the United States, its, its, its Navy is globally stretched. Uh, resources are limited in Washington. I think the only way to really make ends meet in this part of the world and in, and in the eastern Indian Ocean in terms of naval coverage is to move towards a much more structured multinational burden sharing arrangement, which brings in the UK, France, the other Europeans, Australia, Japan, uh, and the more capable um, allies. Let's see whether the United States uh, does invest in, in that. Uh, it's a space to watch. Brilliant. Well, thank you, James, Ewan, and Aaron for joining me on the show today. And thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you missed the Secretary of Defense's remarks at the full turn lecture on 27 July 2021, you're in luck. You can find a recording and transcript of the speech on the IISS website. Please do follow, rate, and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you listen to your favorite podcast to keep up to date with all the latest episodes. And for more in-depth analysis of the key international security and defense issues from around the world, be sure to follow the IISS on Twitter, LinkedIn, or visit the IISS website. Thank you and see you next time.